listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack of all trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Before we get started with today's podcast, we wanted to let you know how you can get the first chapter of Cliff Hudson's new book, Master of None, for free. All you need to do is text the word CLIFF, C-L-I-F-F, to 31996. That's CLIFF to 31996 to get your free chapter of Cliff's new book, Master of None. Now, on to today's conversation. My guest this morning is Dr. Anthea Hartig, the Elizabeth McMillan Director of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Good morning, Anthea. How are you? Good morning, Cliff. I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing fine. Appreciate you taking time to to visit about uh, your your path. Thank you yes. so much for honoring me with the invitation. Well, I'm happy to have done so, and and more honored that you accepted the invitation. So thanks for thanks for being on the program this morning. The discussion I'd like to have this morning, uh, Anthea, is an overlapping one, one that um, uh, involves, of course, your path and your present endeavor, but also intersecting with some of the things that um, uh, I've been talking about recently on my podcast and uh, that are contained in my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. You know that the um, first full chapter in the book does deal with the idea that change is a constant, and I've enjoyed visiting with you at times in the past about that very concept and how it fits in a historical context and the outlook of a, of a serious historian. For our listeners today, though, I think it would be a good place to start before we jump into that, uh, the thicker part of things, walk back through your upbringing and uh, where you grew up and, and uh, your educational path, et cetera, because it's an interesting one, but it'll also give that context to our, our listener. So you grew up in California, is that is that right? I I did indeed. I'm a third generation uh, girl from the Pomona Valley, um, which is in the kind of it bridges the most eastern part of Los Angeles County, and then moves into uh, present day San Bernardino County um, in Southern California. Did you go to public schools in California as you were growing up? I like to say, Cliff, that I'm a K through PhD public school girl, and okay. uh, I was Good. very fortunate to go through both elementary and secondary, and then uh, an Alta Loma uh, school district, and then on to UCLA, um, UC Riverside, uh, sojourn in, uh, for a little while into the College of William and Mary, uh, and then back to UC Riverside for my PhD. Right. So California, really uh, almost all the way. Uh, uh, interesting, the the year or or so, however long that was in, in Virginia, William, William and Mary, uh, obviously mm-hmm. a place of uh, enormous historical appreciation and consequence uh, in our country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, complicated so, place. Yeah, you know, going uh, from California to a place where the tallest building in town was the steeple of the 1763 Bruton Parish Church was a was a wonderful juxtaposition. Um, and I was, mm. but I was on a path to be a colonialist. I was going to be a colonial U.S. historian, and I had spent some time in Williamsburg as part of a program through um, the University of California mm. when I was a junior mm. at UCLA, and so it was it was. You know, layered and really wonderful time. Um, and I think it's helped, is certainly helpful uh, as I view now con- more of a global comparative uh, colonial set of experiments that has uh, so shaped the world, but especially the North American continent and that part of it that has become the United States. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it is a, a delightful setting and one. Uh, perhaps with your studies, you have a little deeper appreciation than I have. But we, my wife and I, have enjoyed visiting there over the years and mm-hmm. and uh, interacting with the folks that have done a wonderful job with preservation there. Yeah, it's a it's very much a tw- early twentieth century place, reflective of those values as well as um, trying to capture a colonial place, which is you know capturing the past is elusive as uh, as historians know. So yeah, it it certainly 
provides, you know, all of us, I think, who think about heritage and place and memory um, and philanthropy, right? Because of course of Rockefeller's influence on right. how the, the, you know, the built environment that we've inherited um, as stewards. And I know you, you share that with me in terms of caring deeply uh, about history and heritage, the vastness of both the materiality we've inherited as well as the physicality and, and uh, as well as intangible stories, cultural expressions, arts, food, folkways. So a, a formative part of my life for sure. <laughs> So your time at UCLA, your focus was uh, American history as well? Well, you know, I, I fell in love with it. I was going to be an English major, and I fell in love with history taking a survey class from a, an absolutely brilliant historian. But he made it so exciting and relevant and then you, and very evocative. Uh, and so I took my 10-speed and h- walked up the nine flights of stairs or Six flights. I forget what level of the <laughs> bunch building UCLA's history department's on. I think it might be six. And I walked into the history department office and I asked how I could be a history major. And I'm sure that the I got to know the department secretary, who's an amazing woman. Always get to know the department secretaries. Yeah, right. Because they keep everything together. Right. And stayed in touch with her actually for a long time. And so I, I'm sure she thought, who is this woman carrying her bike? you know, up the stairs, because anytime I could get a workout, I did. And, uh, and why does she want to be a history major? But I was I was that taken, um, uh, Cliff. And I was so fortunate to be at UCLA at a time, as well as UCR and William and Mary, at a time where history departments, so this is, I started college in the fall of 1982, and okay. history departments had really started to come into their own. You know, they were being transformed by social and cultural history that, of course, grew out of uh, the, you know, the momentous social cleavages and fight for racial and social justice, right. uh, especially as manifested in the 1960s. The very first ethnic studies courses um, came out of that time. You see, I think the first one was probably at San Francisco State, 1968. So by the time in the mid 80s, when I was learning how to be a historian and to think like an historian, uh, those departments were were filled with uh, both venerable and very learned historians who had come up after World War II. And then, you know, a lot of the, that next generation who um, had taken history and you know, as a passion to understand the past and to unlock the tools, and for me, it really did then and still does help me unlock you know the mysteries of the universe. It's an interesting description of your of the history department there, and and the eye opening mm-hmm. experience, Owen. Because uh, you know, first of all, from my own path, I started college thinking I would study political science, but uh, history courses mm-hmm. I took really excited me. And uh, far more than political science did, and I, in my second year of undergrad school, shifted to to history. But right. I started undergraduate about ten years before you. The reason you're what you're saying occurs to me uh, that didn't occur to me at the time was mm-hmm. I can't think in the history department. I honestly it, uh, uh, don't recall meeting a person of color or a woman in the history right. department, and as I think about the that changed infusion dramatically in, 10 in years. the next 10 mm-hmm. years, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And as I think about the uh, infusion of new talent, even into my undergraduate school while I was there, it was not so much in history, but in sociology and law and some other areas. Mm-hmm. So uh, what an interesting difference in that 10 years and, and one that would incentivize you differently by you know, what you saw. Oh, absolutely. And then for my love of colonial um, U.S. history was born out of um, my own family's past. We have relatives that we can trace back to 18th century in the Pennsylvania colony, mm. but was really born out of historians like Gary Nash, whose pathbreaking book, Red, White, and Black, was, was new. Mm. Gary took apart the kind of Anglo-centric notion of what colonial experience was like. He painted a, a landscape in which 
the cultures of the deep long history of, of culture of, of the native peoples of the continent, even you know the very deep history of, of African um, and the, the richness of African history, and then the kind of the collision of various, as you know, not just England or Great Britain um, after 1704, but of the various empires whose who's kind of clash cultural and, and militaristic and religious and otherwise played itself out on the land. And Gary, among others, also had amazing cultural geographers at UCLA, just an amazing uh, set of faculty members, really also stoked my love of and belief in place mm-hmm. and that the ways in which we understand history need to start in a grounded way. From that, throughout my professional life, the, I've been so fortunate, Cliff, I think, to understand, which is a you know lifelong process of, as lifelong learners that we both are, the very deep layers of that place. And historians just get like the very top of the frosting and the rosettes of the big cake, right? If you think paleontologically up through the long history of, of place and time, Right. We just get the thinnest, you know, the thinnest bit. But I've spent my life understanding those those uh, those layers. So did you um, go immediately from uh, your undergraduate program, your degree in history at UCLA into into and graduate school or was there? I any, did. Any, I, did. Okay. I was very fortunate to have a full scholarship to UC Riverside because one of Gary Nash's prize students, Dr. Sharon Salinger, was new to newish to faculty at UCR, and she had led the program I mentioned uh, when I that I took to Colonial Williamsburg uh, when I was a junior. Sharon had led that. It was a pan UC program, so any UC students could apply. But it was run out of the University of California Riverside, and we spent ten weeks in Colonial Williamsburg, mm. one week in Philadelphia, and the last week in Washington D.C spending a lot of time, of course, at the National Museum of American History. Hmm. So you would have been in your mid-20s at the time, yes? I was a, no, I was 20, yeah. Okay, I okay. Turn 21. I would turn 21 at the end of that quarter. Okay. And, um, and this is graduate school? No, this is an undergraduate school. Okay. So then okay. when I came okay. time for grad school, Sharon okay. said, you have to come to UCR. And so I did. I went right in uh, to grad school. I was I was determined I was going to be a U.S. colonialist studying uh, gender and place and the intersections of those uh, powerful uh, identities and trajectories. And then I did my coursework for colonial U.S. as well as European history, specializing in England. Mm-hmm. And then I had one of those aha moments mm-hmm. where... UCR's other master's program, which they then called the Program in Mm -hmm. Historic Resources Management, which is now called the Public History Program, was very interesting and alluring to me because Mm -hmm. it actually dealt with what can be, you know, kind of dismissively called either public history or applied history, but it got into all the things that I had always loved, especially the built environment. I didn't know a lot about museums or or archives or archival practice, but I had grown up around a cognizance of of both place. I remember to this day, the first time we took a train from Pomona to downtown Los Angeles, and I saw all of the you know, the, a very different landscape. It was the first real and you, city. And you were, a young, you were a young girl at that time. I was six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. We went to Alvera Street, um, yes. which I've later unpacked in my career. Yes, yes. Really fascinating I, 1920s construction. Now, UC Riverside was how far from the town where you, you grew up? Oh, gosh, about 35 miles, probably. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. you, you were very UCLA much... And then UCLA was probably 60, 50... Okay. 860. Yeah. So okay. I was in that, I was in this radius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting just for a person's worldview develops, but at the same time, uh, until you were well into your twenties, you know, it sounds like most of your time was spent um, an hour or so from where you grew up. Yeah. yeah. My mom grew up in Rhode Island. And so we spent a lot of time in, in New England, especially in, the, in some very memorable summers, uh, and including driving across the country, which, as you know, there's nothing like mm. driving across the country yeah. to understand <laughs> its vastness. Um, and I get to know the world through, like a lot of us do, through reading. So I mm. travel through books. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to travel. It does great things for the mind, for the outlook and 
and otherwise. So, so you and I met uh, upwards of 15 years ago when you were uh, with the uh, National Trust for Historic Preservation and the and the Western Western Office in San Francisco. Your jump, I don't know how many years that would have been, but it sounds like you might have had, you know, uh, 15 years or less of professional. Uh, employment elsewhere before joining the National Trust. That was in California um, as well, um, before your your time before the National Trust, right? Correct. When I made that pivot, as I started to uh, intimate from the regular yes. history program to the program in historic resource management, I did... I took classes in, in archival management, museum studies, uh, conservation. Uh, it was a a well-designed program, but my my love became historic preservation, and it, and and you know as you know, it's because you had great mentors. I had great mentors uh, at UCR and around the state there. So when I went, uh, internship was required for that master's program, and so unsurprisingly, Cliff, I went back to Colonial Williamsburg because I wasn't going to do a Southern California internship. I was going to go places, right? So I interned in the architectural records department under the overarching guidance of Carrie Carson. And I worked with the original drawings from the Rockefeller era of the reconstruction of Colonial Williamsburg. And my master's thesis is actually on that reconstruction and those archival records. So I was going to stay at William & Mary. Uh, They had just launched an American studies PhD program. Carrie Carson and his, his wonderful wife, Barbara, encouraged me to apply. So I applied and had a scholarship to do a PhD in American studies because American studies, as you know, was kind of, it's a cold war birth project, but it, um, it's interdisciplinary and mm-hmm. it has a lot of the things that I love, right? Where you mm-hmm. can combine right. everything from literature to history, you know, sociological perspectives, cultural anthropological perspectives. And so um, I had started my PhD at William & Mary and along comes, again, through mentors at UCR, a job advertisement for the very first full-time historic preservation position at the city of Rancho Cucamonga, which is, of course, where I grew up. Mm. Mm. And I never really thought I would return to the place I grew up. Right. Uh, but I applied and came back to Southern California. You know, My mom picked me up at Ontario Airport, where we had flown out of all my life, which was, of course on the grounds of the former grounds, of course, of the Cucamonga Indians. And mm. there's a incredible viticultural uh, layer there. Cause in the, where I grew up cliff along the San Bernardino mountains, the alluvium, the high alluvium was perfect for citrus and the lower sandier alluvium for grapes. So mm. Rancho Cucamonga mm. at one time, um, and really not and just a generation or two before me um, was this really interesting mixture of viticultural and citricultural landscapes with mm. cat, mm-hmm. you know, class or caste hierarchies of peoples and mm-hmm. uh, just a fascinating history. And also showed me the kind of the depth that you really actually can know one place really well, right? You mm. can understand, again, those, those layers. So sure enough, Cliff, I was offered the job. And mm-hmm. so I became, I was at Rancho Cucamonga, started their uh, oral history project started the archives there grew the landmarks project and mm-hmm. then was offered a position at the city of riverside so bigger mm-hmm. city okay a little right. more inland kind of in between and la you're, and you're at what age at this point uh i started at rancho cucamonga i was 25 and i mm-hmm. um, went to riverside when i was 30. Okay. so riverside is a was the gem of that area historically so it already had a very mature history program that i was able to expand and grow and um and and learn so much and then fell in love got married was pregnant with our first son langston and who he would be named langston and i wanted to go back to work part-time right i wasn't allowed to go back to work part-time as a manager i was a senior preservation planner because you had to work full-time to be a manager right Right. this is 1998 not 1958 yeah i was gonna say not long ago right and who right. wants to work part-time? New mothers, people taking care of each other. You know, I decided that, uh, John and I decided that we um, we could afford it. And I wanted to focus on, on a couple of things. One, finishing my PhD, because I had gone back to UCR, done my coursework, transitioned myself into a 20th century 
U.S. historian with an emphasis on the built environment and architecture and all the you know material culture. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to finish that PhD. Um, I also had an offer to start teaching part time, and I also started my own consulting firm. So I consulted back to the city of Riverside. I worked for the county of Riverside. I really only worked for people who wanted to do good. Well, they also permitted you by doing that to work part-time, it sounds like. so. Exactly. I worked part-time on a number of things. And then I birthed our second son, Cameron, uh, 16 months after Langston. And also that summer was offered like my my dream job that would have taken us to Sacramento. Well, I Mm. thought it was my dream job, but decided not to. Decided to stay. My mother-in-law was dying of cancer. Mm. Lots of stuff Mm. going on. And the old, you know, door closes, windows opens. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was offered a full-time position as a professor at La Sierra University, which is in, also in Riverside. I taught part-time at back in my home department at UCR's history department, teaching public history. I was appointed uh, by Governor uh, Davis to uh, serve on the state's Historic Resources Commission. Mm-hmm. which I then mm-hmm. became chair of for, mm-hmm. for those years. So yeah. to serve in an employed capacity, is that right? Or, or, as, no, a, or as a commission member? I see. Okay. Gotcha. Commission member of volunteer. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So I got to be, I got to grow in both becoming more of an historian because you learn so much from your students. You know, when you have to teach, you learn a lot. And um, so those kind of mommy professor commissioner, chair of the commission years were just remarkable. Uh, and again, multivaried and uh, dynamic, and and I and I finished. I finished my dissertation during that time, mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. so that's right. when the National Trust came calling. It was a fascinating opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, the National Trust at that time had a, a vibrant regional office uh, network, and the very first one was established in 1971 in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I was I got mm-hmm. the lead. Uh, and grow that office and work and in the was, This was states. 06 or so, or when was this? I was recruited in 04 and I joined in early 05. Okay. Fantastic new opportunity for you, particularly from the standpoint of, you know, having your own budget and managing staff and, and, and so on uh, in, the, in, yeah. the, in the preservation arena and, and probably helped you uh, maybe for the first time kind of leap from uh uh, a, a more localized application of yeah. this to uh, um, a at least a multi-state, certainly a region of the U.S., and mm-hmm. um, began not only expanding your scope but probably expanding your network and your your uh, you know your horizon generally. I would guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'd certainly you know done a lot more traveling by that time. I had certainly you know participated very actively in the public history world and conferences and papers and um, and really try and, and served on, I believe in service deeply. I encourage everyone to get involved at whatever local level they can of public service and if the volunteer opportunities of both local service as well as nonprofit service, I think are so critical and kind of how we are American in many respects. So um, I had done some national work. I'd served on national boards as well as state boards by that time. Um, that doesn't um, diminish at all your point, though. Um, working yeah. in those eight Western states, tethered to D.C., of course, where the National Trust is still headquartered, right. was right. a. I called it my second Ph.D. I thought I knew yeah. a lot, right. you know? right. <laughs> and That's I was good, also fortunate, even as a young as a young historian, both at uh, the two cities for which I worked, I was also in charge of a small budget and that budget just kept on growing. So as you know, you're not necessarily trained a lot on management, never mind leadership, um, going through uh, grad school in history. Uh, that's changing. I think public historians understand much more the need to help train its students that way. But the yeah, the trust years were were remarkable. So your jump to the historical California Historical Society. How would you describe can, can contrast the uh, this the size of the staff and uh, in I suppose budget, if you don't mind, uh, between the regional office in uh, San Francisco for the National Trust versus the the, Ca- the California Historical Society, and was that also in San Francisco, or did you relocate it was. to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. The California Historical Society was founded in 1871. You know, remember California 
became a state in 1850. And a number of early, what I call kind of simultaneously, like, you know, writing one's history as one is living it, uh, groups emerged in, in, in CHS at, at that time with fits and starts until the until the 20s. So I had worked with the California Historical Society and so admired it. Um, the Special collections there are incredible. I was approached by a number of CHS board members if I would be interested because the, the previous director had retired. The irony, Cliff, is that it was literally down the, the block. It was two alleys mm. away from where mm. I had moved the Western office to the Hearst yeah. building, to the historic Hearst building on 3rd yes. and Market. Yes. And the Historical Society was in a, a, a wonderful a petite but but beautifully rehabilitated 1920s uh, commercial building on third and mission literally mm. a block away mm. so i had grown the western office this is of course when richard um dickmo right. was right. at the head of the trust and yes. you know and dick allowed for um an entrepreneurial spirit among the regional uh, directors. So we had mm. grown, I think I inherited th four staff and I think we had grown it up to about 10. Mm. We'd started the Modernism and Recent Past Initiative. We'd opened the Programmatic Field Office, which became the Green Lab in yeah. Seattle. We had and the, the, the Modernism for California was obviously a natural, very natural absolutely. fit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. as you know, it's also everywhere, right? It's in DC, it's in Honolulu. Right, you know, it, it's it's a it's a moment in time that is a, you know, we're still um, understanding. And so the, um, the staff the, of so ten, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the staff of yeah, ten I think compared that's to we got the budget probably up to half, three quarters of a million. You know, it was still a modest budget. Um, at the California Historical Society that year, the budget was around one point two million, and okay. uh, I think I had about eighteen staff. Okay. Um, okay. And it too, like like all nonprofits. So remember you have a, like the National Trust Cliff, it has a national mandate, but especially as it was, you know, as we came off of federal funding. So mm. you have a national mandate, but a nonprofit structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At CHS, I had a state mandate because we were by the state, a state act. We were the state's official historical side, but we weren't a state agency. Mm. So I had a statewide mandate in a state that if you put California on the East Coast, it stretches from Northern Georgia to Southern Maine. And it had wow. at the Excellent. time, right around 40 million people. Now, of course, it has more. One of the key things that I've, you know, learned in both of them, right, is that these are it's incredibly challenging leadership strategies when you have that general lack of fiscal sustainability. So your funding was totally uh, private. At exactly. California Historical Society, yeah, raise okay. your own operating. Okay, okay. And so, to, yeah. you know, and to this day, we did. I think we. I'm so proud of the work we did there, but it it is a constant struggle, and especially mm -hmm. right now with COVID. I mean, that's yeah. the other. Thing oh I my, think. yeah. When you were then with the California Historical Society, did you begin to have more interaction with the Smithsonian or the National Museum of American History throughout that time, or you obviously referred earlier? in your career, actually in your 20s while in college, it sounded like the, the interaction, uh, professional interaction with the, the National Museum. Uh, did that pick back up at some point in either of those positions with the National Trust or the California Historical Society? So the Smithsonian for, for me, um, until I got to the California Historical Society, you know, was, I was in all of it, you know, most people are. But what CHS did for me, because of the hybridic nature of historical society, which is, you know, part museum, part archives, part special collections, part research library, part educational facility, you know, they're so, and then the bigger state historical societies are the better funded, like, you know, Minnesota, which is averages, I don't know, between 60 and $70 million a year. Um, at its peak, we got CHS up to about 5 million a year. The key thing for me, the missing piece of my knowledge was really around museums because the rest of the landscape of the historical society and certainly any place-based materiality and even, you know, material culture, I had been spending a lot of time, as you know, with generally immovable heritage, right? Buildings, landscapes, you mm -hmm. know, objects, bridges. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I had moved into the world of movable heritage, right? Mm -hmm. Where artifacts, documents, uh, objects uh, were important on their own right, 
not necessarily in their physical context. So understanding museums was critical. Understanding exhibitions was critical. And when I inherited CHS, we had no curators. And we were supposed to do a major exhibition on the history of the Golden Gate Bridge for the 75th anniversary of the bridge. I had been through the Gettys Museum Leadership Institute, which was an amazing experience uh, when I was at the National Trust. Hmm. And I called on my curatorial friends whom I knew, and and one in particular, uh, Jessica Howe, who had just left the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, who was an artist, uh, art curator and administrator and a brilliant curator. I said, hey, you want to curate a show? And she said, well, I'm, I'm an art curator. I said, no, 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 I know, and I'm a historian, so, you know. Let's figure this out. And she said, well, when is it going to open? And I, I said, uh, it needs to open around February. And she said, February of 2013 or 14? I said, no, you know, February of 2012. And right. it was October of 2011. So mm, my, uh, my, when my. I started at CHS. Right. But what that, what that showed me, and we ended up doing dozens of shows, literally, and sometimes at two breakneck break neck a pace and explored so many different parts of California's history uh, as as we grew together at CHS and with partners with Stanford, with our, with partners uh, in Los Angeles at, at uh, La Plaza de Cultura y Artes and did just a remarkable and powerful range of projects, including with the state of California, pioneering primary source driven uh, K through 12 educational portal. So, um, all of that really, I, I I know now, was helping prepare me for the call from the Smithsonian. We'd we'd got to to know the Smithsonian a little bit at CHS um, in our partnership with the city and county of San Francisco around our hopes to rehabilitate the old U.S. Mint from 1874 uh, as the new home of the California Historical Society. And at mm. one at one point, the Smithsonian was also interested in, in, uh, and we, we briefly examined a, a potential partnership there that ended up not happening. But I did get to know the then provost and a, a number of colleagues uh, from the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. So uh, it it was uh, it was he um, and I'm so grateful I'm so great I try and live in gratitude Cliff because I feel so fortunate we were born certainly with not you know not a lot of money but a hardworking family and as you know as as a as a white woman in America I have I I, I walk in privilege but I'm I'm so and I'm so grateful for the for that connection to the Smithsonian because that's how they reached out and, and uh, recruited me. Uh, as one of the candidates, just learning about the Smithsonian from the, to the to that you know recruitment process right. was uh, right. was remarkable. Yeah, your reference to the provost, the help help uh, our listeners with the organizational structure of the Smithsonian. The provost is uh, above the museum level, or correct. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, and then okay. it, it goes back and forth. The secretary of the Smithsonian currently, of course, is, is Lonnie G. Bunch the third. He forms kind of a a set of undersecretaries as well as a deputy secretary and sometimes the undersecretary who is overseeing uh, museums also has the academic title of provost okay. so the, the Smithsonian is modeled on the academy the board of regents um, is also is titularly and congressionally constructed it's always headed by the serving um, supreme court justice so in our case that's mm. uh, chief justice roberts yeah and it is populated by appointed congressional members. It's the vice chancellor is always the sitting vice president of the United States. And then there are public members as well. Some of your former national trust. So that, that is a very, that's the board of regents. Um, And all of that is a superstructure over the governing body that, um, that oversees the uh, national museum of American history. Is that correct? It's a superstructure over it. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. So our museum is um, about 800,000 square feet. The first purpose built museum on the mall. What is now the natural history museum was the national museum after the castle and the arts and industries building were built. What is now natural was the national museum, which is why it's so fantastically vast and looks like a, you know, early 20th century museum should. And so the um, the site across the street between the former National Museum and the Washington Monument uh, was chosen for the new museum, uh, a National Museum of History and Technology in the 1950s. So it's very much a post-war 
kind of Cold War expression of what, uh, you know, America in a way was the most proud of itself. It's the last um, building of record of McKim, Mead and White, you know, obviously not known for their modernism. Background in uh, 61, I think, and opened the same year I was born in 1964. Okay. <laughs> I like to so, say we're the you know, we're the same age and we're showing the same uh, the same wear and tear. Well, um, well, it changed well. its name to the National Museum of American um, History in 1980. Okay, and now we have a, we have a close to about a 40 this year's 47.2 million dollar budget and about My. 260 staff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, quite sizable operation. And a fascinating progression to your own career. And you've you've uh, been in that position how long now, Anthea? I started on the Day of Remembrance, which is February 19th of every year, because that's when Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 in 2019. So this Feb- coming February will be two years. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. And um, my sense is it's been a a fast and full two years as well. Certainly has, uh, and filled with uh, you know so much learning and uh, awareness, and and it's interesting that you note those kind of leaps in in my career. It's like I planned it, which of course I didn't. Um, <laughs> right, but you, know, you right. have to be. You know, I think it's also trying to live in kind of an open, curious, hopefully courageous life. And courage is actually one of the new core values of our. We just finished our new strategic, 10-year strategic plan. Courage, collaboration, care, and accountability are the core values of the museum's uh, new strategic plan. Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a, quote, expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Talk for a minute about the, the museum then and its, and its customer interface, you might say. How many people a year visit the museum? To give our listener a sense of its, the nature of its operations. Surely. So in the before times, and uh, probably an accurate count, once we have mach- more machine counting, uh, would would be between three and four million people a year um, uh, in the museum on a on a on a healthy day in the you know summertime rush, um, we could welcome as many as ten thousand guests a day. The main three floors of the building that you can enter both from the north and the south on different levels from Constitution Avenue as well as from Madison or the mall side, the National Mall side have been kind of reconceptualized over the years. The original um, architectural framework, you can still kind of feel, but through a series of uh, remodeling and renovations, um, you experience uh, a pretty broad span of U.S. history that I'd like to kind of continue to, <laughs> to broaden. And the National Collection, conservatively counted, is uh, that we steward is uh, just at American history is about 1.8 million objects. Mm. And over three mm. linear miles, shelf miles of archival material. It is one of the richest collections about American history, and it is the nation's largest history museum. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, I remember reading now when you start talking about artifacts, that one of the things you have at the museum, uh, you have obviously many things, 1.8 million, but one of them that you have is... Uh, the hat Abraham Lincoln was wearing the evening he was assassinated. Yes, Lincoln's top hat, correct. Yes, yes. That on the one hand, that's fascinating. On the other hand, it's very haunting. Yeah. But it makes me makes me want to come see it. Is it on? Is it actually on public display? It is. It's one of the centerpieces of the presidency exhibition, which is. Um, one of, as you might guess, uh, one of the perennial favorites. It's the last major exhibition that Lonnie curated, um, Lonnie Bunch curated at American History. 
Uh, and it is, it's one of the, the focal points. And by, by the nature of the fragility of the artifact, the light is very dim in that case, yeah. which makes it even a little bit more melancholy. But it, yeah, mm. it's, it's, it's among very, very special artifacts. So in this, uh, I'm curious what the, um, shifting to some of the focus of the museum, in this 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, how the museum is uh, recognizing that. Um, any comments there for our listener? Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's a, it's an accident that I'm the first woman mm. to lead the National Museum of American History chosen in 2018, starting in 2019, because mm -hmm. the the Smithsonian committed very, very deeply and through a partnership with, with Congress actually established the American Women's History Initiative to then start in 2019 and we're extending it through 2021 because uh, we kind of lost 2020 as the year of the woman. And, you know, yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, mm. So very vibrant programming, three exhibitions uh, were already planning underway um, that I was honored to help kind of, you know, shepherd and uh, learned a lot about and um, and seen all three come into being. Uh, the second to last of which was creating icons, um, how we remember women's suffrage, which opened on March 6th of this year. And of course, we closed the museum on March 13th, but a brilliant exhibition. And then on in June, we were supposed to open Girlhood, It's Complicated, which was a major uh, exhibition. The first one we think um, in the history of, of uh, in historic interpretation that looks really carefully about what it means over time to grow up female uh, in the United States. Um, that was pushed to October. We did successfully open that exhibition and we also opened the museum for a very short time. One of the through lines actually, Cliff, of, of my career, which I feel so grateful for is this work in the analog, this work in place, this work in the, you know, the, the very stuff of history and this, the incredible, you know, complicated world that we've uh, created. So the very physical nature of that, but always mixed with the power, the knowledge, the kind of facsimile nature of the digital experience. As a young historian at the city of Rancho Cucamonga, I had on my desktop, this is 1990, you know, computer, unsurprisingly, but still it was, you know, relatively new to have network computers, but the city had, had raised its hand to be one of the early partners with ESRI or ESRI, which is the powerhouse um, GIS, Geographic Information System. Mm. So I had, from the start of my career, I had a very keen sense of being able to then map all kinds of different data, archaeological, cultural, historic, into um, what we now kind of, you know, call a digital interface. Um, mm -hmm. But just in my career span from 1990 now to, to 2020, we've seen that grow so dramatically. So my work in digital humanities and, and digital history and digital archiving um, is has been incredibly helpful at the Smithsonian. One, I inherited already a, you know, a very um, adroit, uh, both digital collections capacity with some incredible new staff at the Smithsonian, as well as digital education. And, you know, our reach, we want to reach the nation, but we're in Washington, D.C., right? So we'd already been thinking that way. But the pandemic, of course, forces us all to think about the virtual learning world and the virtual world, right? you know, very differently. So we've right. been able, so with girlhood, creating icons, and in, actually in every exhibit I did at CHS, always wanting an online presence. So sometimes that would be a very powerful, big, expensive presence, but sometimes at least it would be a tether, right? That you could kind of tether the physical experience to the virtual experience. In some ways, as I hear you talking about, I mean, this is, uh, this is not a surprising theme you know, for the year, but it's also not a surprising theme uh, in history, as I hear you talk about the year 2020, it has been uh, a year of a lot of change. Uh, the, the fact that you had to modify, and all of us had, kind of you know, modify what you're doing almost on the run. It's, a, it's a, I think, a strong intersection, uh, just the study of history and, and the idea of the you know, change over time and the evolution of uh, behavior and activity and uh, physical surroundings, et cetera, over time. But now in the your position, you know, such a larger scale, 
of management and, and uh, human resource oversight, program oversight, et cetera, uh, this pace of change has really picked up even, even more so. It'd be interesting, you know, and one of the things I uh, mentioned at the outset, and, and you and I have talked about before, but in, in, in my book, Master of None, the first chapter is about change being a constant and um, many people not looking at it that way. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing your perspective as a historian mm-hmm. um, about you know change, and particularly uh, you and I first met in that context of the, the preservation movement. Uh, the preservation movement perhaps could be accused at times of resisting change, and uh, the very concept of preservation seems to indicate that. But as a uh, historian, but a person who appreciates the preservation movement and its, its positive impact on our society. How do you juggle that very concept of change and, and what it means for literally understanding our, pa- our past, but not understanding it in a way as though it's constant and, and never changes? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And also thank you for the contribution of Master of None and the, both the description of your own path but also this this wonderful interplay that you bring forth between your your personal journey um, and your professional one, and and the many many ways in which leaders are grown, uh, and then and the way in which you grew as well. But you know, back to change being the only constant, um, and just finishing up about you know girlhood and some of our other big projects, really emphasizing you know uh, digital accessibility. That's a great example. Um, so, you know, life is flux is, is the English translation of kind of pre-Socratic philosopher, philosopher Heraclitus, who was, um, by all accounts, a pretty complicated cat. But he wrote things like, the way up and the way down are one and the same, living and dead, waking and sleeping, young and old are all the same, end quote. Mm. So you, you can also kind of see that right, as kind of, you know, physics and like chaos theory and all kinds of things. Uh, It's also a very indigenous perspective, right? This, this mesh of, of living and dead of awake and asleep and up and down. And, you know, no wonder he was somewhat ostracized as a philosopher, right? For historians, I realized that through my training, we are taught that change is the only constant. So is that it is that actually kind of a Greek intellectual framework but you're right to point out the inherent then contradictions within that mindset, because what do preservationists, conservationists, archivists, you know, what do we do? We, we protect, we save, right? We're accused of fossilizing actually sometimes. There you go. At our best though, and I think you and I both have worked hard to see that as in a different light, as extending the life cycle of a building or extending the life cycle of Abraham Lincoln's top hat that he was wearing when he was shot and assassinated. So I actually love working in those tensions. Um, I've, I tell all my staff that, you know, kind of working in those tensions is some of our most productive space. It's not easy. It requires a lot of, you know, what people deem kind of adaptive leadership, but you embrace that. You embrace that that is flux. Yet we, we have to simultaneously act and act in ways that are transparent and brave and cogent. And, and then the, if, if Heraclitus is the pre-Socratic, right? Socrates is one of another guiding light for so many um, to this day, because I think he helps understand and contextualize as do many traditions, um, especially many religious traditions, um, especially Eastern religious traditions that, you can only make the best decision you can with the information you have at the time. Right. And so to kind of use those. So between those kind of that understanding of change is the only constant and making the best decisions you can uh, with the information you have at hand, I think for me has kind of emerged uh, like I think for you, right. This sense of trying to find that. I think you talk about kind of flexing your leadership muscles, right. There's always an opportunity to to learn, right? And I do think muscles, our leadership muscles, are fed, you know, by the protein of of knowledge, mm. right? Mm. And the protein that it comes to us as new new colleagues and new experiences mm-hmm. um, who who shape us. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It also helps you not take yourself too seriously. And, and you, you talk a little bit about this in the book that, you know, it kind of accepting, and this is hard for me, not taking myself seriously. I hope I can, the day I can't laugh at myself is the day I'm done. But you also talk about kind of accepting the seasonality of things, right? To everything there is a season. There's a little bit of uh, the 60s in both of us. That's hard, I think, as a leader sometimes. It's hard because you pour yourself into that work. Mm-hmm. And then you know, kind of realize that there are forces that you just can't control. Mm-hmm. Right? And you try and stay in the lanes in which you can. Well, is there this constant tension with the, let's say, the effective historian, but also the effective leader? Is there a constant tension between um, recognizing the nature of the change uh, that an organization or a society or even an individual, nature of change or transition that's occurring on the one hand, and yet um, honoring and respecting the past and uh, its role and having gotten you to where you are, uh, but right. honoring that on the other. Does does the combination of those, if they're straddled correctly, does that does that help us cope with change depending on how rapid it is and, and dramatic it is in, in our lives? Well, it's beautifully said, Cliff. I believe so. And I do think it's finding that that balance, right? And I do feel that the respect for both is is key. The respect yeah. for the many pasts, right? how the past and then how the past is created you know history is is both what happened and that which is said to have happened at this we use the same word in english and in most romantic languages hmm. so we have that um, this is the brilliant uh historian of 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 haitian history but really of of history uh michelle ruff julio who speaks about that simultaneity, even of the word of history. But I, I like what you said. I, I do think it is that, I like to say weaving, right? Um, kind of mm-hmm. weaving of those, of those two. And also acknowledging when we can learn from the, from the past. You know, I think right. more has been read about the, the great flu of 1918. Uh, right. That it's all of a sudden, yeah, you know. Back yeah, given where we are. Yes, right. How do we recover from a global pandemic? What happened? 20, between 1920 and 1929, let's say. And it understanding World War One and the great flu pandemic of 1918 helps lay, lay down context, surely, that, you know, is instructive for, our, for us and for our time. But I think is one of those examples right now where we, we need the past, you know, in, and I know I'm in a very special place because I direct the nation's largest history museum. But I think interest in history in the past, especially, you know, eight months, but really in the past kind of four years since the Trump administration started has been really fascinating to me because I think people understand its power, are understanding its power, are understanding how it can help illuminate and certainly show examples, um, whether you believe it repeats or it looks at itself in the mirror, or I kind of tend to choose like origami, it kind of gets folded up in itself, right? And then kind yes. of touches itself, you know. But um, help, me, help me out with this concept. Uh, are some of the challenges that we're confronting now as a society in some of the, what appears to be a greater degree of conflict than it felt like we were having 10 and 20 years ago as a society in the United States. Is this uh, affected in part by the pace of, ch- of change that we've experienced? Or is it affected by uh, this, 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 uh, this tension between recognizing a transition phase on the one hand and yet honoring the past on the other? Uh, how does that play in, do you think, in our current, the current context that we're confronting of uh, the degree of open and public conflict that we seem to be uh, ex- experiencing. Is it, the, is it the pace of change, particularly economic, but also social, that is playing in here? That's a great question. Is it the pace of change? I would, I would probably proffer, Cliff, that it's the pace and the unevenness of change. You know, the faster change, the faster societies move in different sectors, um, but especially, let's say, you know, in the post-Worldwide Web United States and and global landscapes. I think what we've seen is, and what the pandemics, uh, both viral and racial, have, uh, if, you know, if you believe, like a lot of historians do, that you can kind of classify the systemic racism as also having pandemic-like qualities. 
I think what they've revealed is all of those fissures and and cracks and the kind of the cultural seismology, as I've called it before, um, of the nation. But it's also revealed the incredible discrepancies. Yep. So, you know, you have a high level, high pace, fast, you know, incredibly quick paced change. And then you have many people who are left out of that change. Right. And I do think that those divides, cultural, economic, racial, political, are feeling far more manifest now. Because they're yes. it's kind of like they're all on display, you know? Right. Well, t- tell me this in this context. Now, maybe one kind of precedes the, the other in, a, in an odd way uh, with the uh, changes and the recognition of it and resistance in some areas. But I'm intrigued by, in the last decade, the extraordinary popularity of the uh, stage production, the musical uh, Hamilton. Mm-hmm. With its, uh, I mean, you know, you talked about, you know, recognize an historical figure and and mm-hmm. times and so on and so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's just right on the money more than anything that I can recall. Perhaps the movie and the play and books and so on of 1776 would rival that, but this thing has just taken the country almost by storm as it relates to uh, sure. historical uh, art, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so in a moment in time where that seems to have reached such a, an incredible level of popularity, we're also, you know, having this broad uh, struggle, frankly, I think with our history, but where we are. So those may just be coincidental, but maybe no, you know, tie between one and the other, but I'm, I am struck by this, this uh, tie to another time. Uh, You know, at the time the book was written, this most recent book on, on, uh, on Hamilton, it would have been, the 200 anniversary of his death, you know, so that was almost certainly the, the motivation for writing it at the time. And then the musical, you know, mm-hmm. followed thereafter. But mm-hmm. anyway, a, a, you know, a quirky yeah, no, thing. Then. Question. No, it's not, I, I, I'd love to unpack that with you a bit. So if you think about uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda growing up in a very activist household, you know, his father, Luis, is a remarkable and passionate and devoted uh activist, especially for the Puerto Rican community uh, in New York, going to Wesleyan, obviously gifted with huge natural talent, but coming up in a world of, especially, you know, New York-based, the rise of hip-hop and the rise of rap and the sp- the power and the beauty of spoken word, uh, which is, you know, the kind of, the, this you know, this next generation's poetry. You know, it, you have to be a special type of person, you know, first to write In the Heights, which he wrote first, but then to take a tome, and that is a tome, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my fellow historian wrote on, on Hamilton, to take it on a vacation at the beach to read about Alexander Hamilton, you know, you already have to be a special person anyway, right? You already have to love the humanities. You already have to be deeply interested in history. And then you have to be open to an interpretation of Hamilton's life that, as Lynn has said, you know, reads like a hip hop story. You know, it reads like a kid who's, who's come out of, um, of Brooklyn. And to take all that and then to weave that into, you know, a pathbreaking way to understand and contextualize the that kind of raw, complicated, you know, birthing of the nation via a colonial break off from the imperial power of Great Britain. I just even conceptualize that, I think is one of the pure geniuses of it because it's it's synthetic. Um, it's intensely collaborative because, you know, he that's kind of the way he works, but it's also the kind of the sheer brilliance of uh, who he is as uh, an artist. But it, it'll, I think we will see it and we have seen it already. As, and you can argue all kinds of, there's been so many, you know, uh, so much ink and digital ink spilled on, on Hamilton, but it, I think it struck such a responsive chord. And you talk about, you know, the, your, your life of music and in the book, but we, we have always reacted to music. Humans have reacted to music. Primates react to music, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. a powerful through line of our history as as people, as uh, as humanity. But this incredible mashup between a hip hop culture, brilliant lyricism, and historic kind of pinging mm-hmm. up, and re- kind of reimagining what the stories we thought we already knew, uh, right. I think is its real genius. And that it has rekindled for me that it's rekindled an interest in seeing the contemporary resonance and relevance of history mm-hmm. is a true gift. Yeah. 
We did an, we did an exhibition on Hamilton. You are now, or you did? I'm sorry. The California Museum. Historical Society did. Oh, with, okay, okay. With the New York Historical Society. Okay. Um, and then parallel, we had a, a, an exhibition and conversation called "Meanwhile Out West." So we mm. looked at comparative colonialism between ah, California and Spain at, at right. that time. Of course, the Spanish right. at the time, as well as highly indigenous and uh, Hamilton's time. Yeah, so. and has has the National Museum done anything in connection with the uh, the rise in the Hamilton um, popularity? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. Um, we are very grateful that Lynn Manuel. Uh, gifted the museum a number of artifacts, including that splendid green silk suit he wore in the first run uh, that is in our collection now. Uh, and he's done a number of, of, of programs with us. Um, I'd love yeah, to do. That's great. Yeah, you know, that's great. Creative, uh, a creative genius. And again, has made history accessible in ways that allows us to into the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And they not that's talk about slavery enough. Did they not? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are all conversations that we can have through that yeah. vehicle. Yeah. Wonderful byproduct. Mm -hmm. So as we, as we kind of draw to a close here, one of the things I think it'd be interesting for the listener to hear and appreciate would be the fact that uh, we are coming on the, uh, I'd say in the next five years, uh, the mm -hmm. 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And what, what does that mean for the National Museum and, and your planning? And what should we expect to see uh, over the next five years in relation to that? So the semi-quincentennial of the nation, or America 250, if you want to shorthand it, as the, mm -hmm. the formal commission. So President Obama created the formal commission in 2016, you know, 10 years okay. before 2026. Yes. That commission is actually meeting uh, the Smithsonian serves on uh, as ex officio on that. Um, in fact, they're meeting right now. Um, <laughs> so one of my other colleagues is, is a couple of my colleagues are there. And so there's the, there's a big kind of national commission, like, like, the, you know, like that was done for the bicentennial. And then there are a number of, of history related activities that are, are, um, are shaping up. Um, we're deeply involved in one called made by us, mm. uh, capital, capital S, which is, um, um, now a coalition of about ooh, 75 or 80 different museums, historical societies, historic sites. Monticello is one of the, the, the founding steering committee mm. members, uh, which is aiming really at um, younger audiences, millennials and um, uh, Gen Zs to engage with them digitally. So, you know, it's a born digital project. It engages, it meets them where they are to understand history's power in creating, you know, a more engaged uh, and uh, and activated and animated uh, group of of people who care deeply about the nation, you know, it's it is really about for us. I think it's how do we commemorate, problematize, um, understand 1776 and the signing of the Declaration of Independence, um, you know, between July 2nd and July 4th. What was the rest of the nation like? You know, what was the continent like? Um, mm -hmm, 1776, mm -hmm. where I grew up, was um, one of the key northern inland passages of Juan Batista de Anza from Sonora, um, trying to colonize the inland part of what we now know as California, or Alta California, it was, as it was called, right? North California, instead of mm. Baja. The missions were already starting to... Um, to be built by that time, native uprisings all across the Southwest, you know, were going on. Right. So it's a so, it's an incredible moment for us to think about that kind of the the big broad context of, right. of what was occurring in the United States. Right. And for me, I think it, even being here in Washington, it's critical for us to design outreach and programs, you know, like ours, like um, the the American Association of State and Local. History has been working on this as well. To, I see it as an incredible way to try and strengthen and bring forth and understand where we are as the historic profession, whether that it's it's historic preservation, archives, museums, kind of the broad range of of public history. To see really what our future is, what the utility of our work is, and how, as Lonnie states, we can help the nation live up to its founding ideals. Yeah. Well, this will be something fascinating to look forward to. And uh, what a wonderful opportunity that this is happening 
on your watch and under your leadership. So this will be a. I'm, I'm a, humbled. Let me tell you, it's not. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's well, it's so funny because I can remember so well, you know, 1976 and and the the bicentennial celebration at the time. So it's kind of a kind of a wild thing to think about the 250th anniversary of the of right. that time, the Declaration of Independence, and the celebration of the same. So. How yeah, do we help the nation yeah. and the globe get to the 300? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I hope I get to celebrate too, but uh, I'm not going to plan on that one. So I hope you do. Well, but, and yeah, as you right. know, we have also together focus on the biggest, one of the biggest existential threats, of course, which is manifesting itself in such real ways, which is the climate crisis. So, yes. Well, and Thea, it's been uh, delightful to visit with you today. I really appreciate you, the manner in which you, uh, not just lead your life and your career, but the uh, discussion you've taken us with today, this very concept of change being a constant and and uh, uh, perhaps kind of supercharge what some people's view of a historian may be of viewing things, you know, as a, a point in time and a period of time, but rather uh, rather the, the very idea that we're in a constant transition phase and the need for us to uh, understand that and recognize it and embrace it you know, even as we respect and honor the past. Wish you the best of luck in your endeavors. And as we get beyond the, the coronavirus, it will be wonderful perhaps to be able to come back and, and uh, experience some of the exhibits that you've not been able to promote so heavily this year. But yeah, I'd love to. As you know, in, we can't wait to return to a time where we're only closed one day a year, the 25th of yes. December, instead mm. of right now every day. But yeah. our doors are open, you know, digitally, and uh, we can't wait to welcome you and, and many others. And, and thank you, Cliff. Thank you for your work. And thank you for this opportunity to share with you and, and your listeners. I'm deeply grateful. Well, great. Uh, it's been fun being with you today. and look forward to continuing the conversation over time. Likewise. Anytime. Thank you, Anthea. Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity.